very same way. And I'm always uplifted by your praise and getting to worship together. So fun, especially since we're going to talk about worship. And um, I do think it's important to talk about worship because I think if church does not have true worship, then the church will not be alive for very long. In fact, I read this uh, little story about Pastor McGee, who noticed this little seven-year-old boy. He was looking at a plaque that they had hung to honor those who had died in the military in their church. So he was staring up at the plaque, and so Pastor McGee walked up alongside little Alex and said, Hi, Alex, how are you? And he said, fine. And he said, Pastor, what is that? And he said, these are the people that have died in the service. And little Alex said, which one, the 9 o'clock or the 11 o'clock service? (laughs) That's what happens when there's no worship in a church. We have been studying the first 11 chapters in Deuteronomy. These are broad principles um, that were presented. Moses has been reviewing the past for Israel and reminding them of how good God has been for them. And his hope is that when they are reminded of that, he will develop within them a deeper, truer love for God so that when they are in the promised land, They will choose to obey and walk and love God. This is Moses' plea. Now in chapters 12 through chapters 26, Moses builds on this foundation and applies specific laws into the specific new situation that they're going into. So far, they've been slaves in Egypt. They've been nomads in the wilderness. And now they're going to be in a situation where they are conquerors where they are tenants in the land that God has called them to be in. And so for these next few weeks, we will see the responsibilities that God sets before them if they are to live like his chosen people and if they are to be blessed by him in the land. And these next laws we're going to be reading are called the Code of Deuteronomy. And you can see where they start in verse 1 of chapter 12. Let's look at that together. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. So today are specific laws about worship. And I I was thinking when I was working on this back throughout my week, and I, I realized something. I remember during the week I was at a funeral and someone was singing beautifully, How Great Thou Art. And I sat back in that pew, and I worshipped God. And then I was working on the lesson, and it was a warm day, and the birds were singing outside my window. And I sat back, and I worshipped God. And I studied the Bible this week and learned more about who he is. And when I reflected on that, I was worshipping God. And then um, I would be praying. I had some hard prayers of need and confession this week. And when I laid that at the altar... I worshipped God, and I thought, worship is just a natural part of a believer's day. It should be natural for the creation to always have our thoughts turning toward our Creator. And I think we probably worship God much more than we all realize. A.W. Tozer calls it inwardly gazing Godward. And I think that's something we all probably do 
more than we know we are. We could even make a list of that like I did during the week. Those are moments of worship when you are doing this. You are giving to God the glory due his name. That's what worship is. Giving to God the glory due his name. But what if you were people who'd been roaming around for 40 years in the wilderness and um, your older generation, your parents and other people, have sort of lost sight of who God really is. And now you're about to enter a land and it's filled with people who never had a sight for who God really is. In fact, they filled the land with false gods, with stones and and wooden objects that they are calling God, that they've substituted for the one true God. If that were true, how would a loving God protect this people group? I'm sure he felt like a father about to send his children out into the world in that situation. And here's what a loving God would do. He would teach them about true worship. Because in true worship... They would know the one true God, and they would be safe and stay connected to him. I think that's why worship is probably the first principle when we get to these specifics in chapter 12, because unless Israel would be properly related to Yahweh God, they could not realize themselves as a nation. They could not be that nation that God had called them, to, called them to be. They couldn't recognize their nationhood. Because it would be in worship that the sovereignty of God would be recognized. It would be in worship that they would hear the laws again. It would be in worship that they would be protected from the evil and the outside influences. It would be in worship that Israel would celebrate together in unity the goodness and the reality of God. And I also think it's true that only in true worship do truly spiritual things happen. So this would be the gift that God would give them. And some theologians believe that these uh, 14 chapters we're going to look at also go parallel in order of the Ten Commandments, which would make sense here because... What's the first commandment? Have no other gods before me. Second one, don't make for yourself an idol and worship them. And so these first laws definitely are tied in to what the first commandments are. True worship is directed to the one who is worthy of worship. Let's look at verse 2 in chapter 12. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are disposing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. We picture... This people group with Moses standing next to them, looking out toward the promised land. And if they had a pair of binoculars, they would see the land studded with symbols and emblems of worship to idols and false gods. And they would be in some of the most beautiful places. Under big, sweeping green trees, they would see this refuse and altars where things had been burned and sacrificed. On a high, beautiful mountain, they would see signs of this. 
And this was a sad thing for the people to come into. The Canaanite people chose to worship gods in high places because they thought we're that much closer to God. Let's go as high as we can go. They also chose to worship them in green places because they had these gods of fertility, and that was their prayer. They wanted fertile land, and they wanted to be fertile people. And so they also went to fertile areas. The pillars that they're talking about here were probably large, upright stones symbolizing the god Baal, who was the storm god. The Asherah poles were symbols of the mother goddess Asherah. These were sexual symbols. There were lots of other gods made out of stone and rock and wood lying around. Temple prostitutes, human sacrifices were all a part of this pagan worship. And you and I can read this and sort of think, you know, how could someone ever actually kind of bow down to a rock or an image or stone? And it seems sort of foolish and silly to us. But if we took some binoculars... And we looked across our whole world today. We would actually be able to see these same kinds of things still going on. Last year, Ted and I were watching, I think it was 2020. And I don't know if any of you saw this, but it was a man who said he was Jesus and he came back to earth. Did any of you see that? Okay, yeah. And uh, nobody knew it but this one little town on a mountain. And so they were the lucky ones. And so it sort of almost looked like one day the guy woke up and looked in the mirror and thought, when I grow my beard out, I look a lot like Jesus. <laughs> and these people thought the same thing. And so you see these people talking about how happy they were Jesus came back to live with them. Great people, a great little community on a mountain, having a great time. Um, and this man, they interviewed him. He didn't necessarily like being in front of the camera. He said really nice things. He didn't say anything that meant anything. But uh, then they showed him walking, and it was sort of like in those Bible pictures you see where the little children are following Jesus, and they were dancing around him, and people were dancing, and he just had this sweet little smile. And I thought, they are worshiping just some guy who looks like Jesus who happened to be walking along a mountain road. He's a nice man, but he is a false god for those people. If worship is giving to God the glory due his name, then false worship is giving to someone or something else the glory that is due the name of God. Substituting God's creation, people, and things into types of God's themselves. And then I'll begin way before our time when Moses came down the mountain and he's carrying the Ten Commandments and they're down there making a golden calf. Before they were making it, they were saying, let us make gods that will go before us into the land. Okay, I sort of thought that's what God had already been doing with them. But no, we're going to make gods that will go before us in the land. Let's attribute to our man-made things something, the honor that belonged to God. And then when they made the golden calf, they stood back and said, there's the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. Giving to an object the glory due to God alone. Around the world today, with our binoculars on, it might look like a man who claims to be Christ, 
a tortilla that looks like Jesus, a statue, a cow in India, crystals, nature, or if we're a little too sophisticated to worship these things, we can just follow false teaching of Kabbalah and be in with the Hollywood jet set, Scientology, Mormonism, Hinduism. Look at what Romans 1 says about all this. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. How do wonderful people become worshipers of things that are false? And God gives us warnings in chapter 13. He warns them, and I think they're great warnings for us. So let's see how we start turning toward the unworthy in verse 1 of 13. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. On your outline, we can be mesmerized away from God with signs and wonders. And did you notice that this person claimed something that really did come true? Sometimes there can be miraculous acts that accompany a false prophet. And that was was what was happening here. Jesus said later, it's an evil generation that seeks a sign. And he also said, blessed are you... You who haven't seen, and yet you believe, our faith is not based on things that we see. And so I would say this. Beware of the individual who captures your heart by capturing your imagination. Be aware. And then our family members and our closest friends can um, persuade us. Look at verse 6. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you, saying, let's go and worship other gods. Now, I want you to look at all the other gods there were possible to worship. Gods neither you nor your fathers have known. Gods are the people around you, near and far, from one end of the land to the other. How many gods were there out there? Do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. The false prophet, they do their signs and wonders probably very publicly. Okay, this is about secret. This is about the people you love the most. This is about intimacy. On your outline, we can be enticed away from our God through intimacy and secrecy. I think we are, uh, this, this appeals to us because these people have great influence over us. It appeals to us because it seems like a privilege. It seems like a secret. It's an honor to be asked to be a part of it. And we want to be included. We want to be in the know. These are the people that pull us away because we don't want to be left out of something. 
I can see this principle in when the Da Vinci Code book was so popular and the book The Secret was so popular. Both of those were based on the premise, there's a secret in the world you have never known. If you buy our book, you can know the secret that's been hidden from the world since all eternity. And millions of people bought the books because they were thinking, whoa, I will now be in the know. This is a secret. I'll be one of those few that really knows the truth. Thirdly, wicked leadership can turn us away. Look at verse 12. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God has given you to live in, that wicked men have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you haven't known. Then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true... And if it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to to the sword all who live in that town. Destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. On your outline, we can be led away from God when we go along with the crowd. This is a picture sort of of this mountain community I was talking about that Jesus showed up in. You've got an entire community, some evil leadership rises within it, and rather than get rid of these people that are spreading truth and trying to bond people together, they just are too lazy or complacent, or because of peer pressure, they give in to what's happening in the town, and before they know it, the whole town has been influenced by evil and affected by it. These outside temptations were a huge, serious issue for the children of God. But I like that Moses lets them know, you also can have some inside temptations that come from inside your heart. Because we are maybe holding too loosely to what we once knew to be true. Look at verse 28 of chapter 12. Be careful to obey all these regulations I'm giving you so it may always go well with you and your children after you. Now, the first two words are be careful. You can't hold loosely to your faith. You have to be careful with it. Hold it firmly so that it may go well with you and your children because you'll be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you've driven them out and settled in their land, and after they've been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. When we look at those verses, we see, first, there's a curiosity. We're in a new land. wonder what they did. Secondly, you're impressed with what they did. Thirdly, you conform and begin to do what they did. And fifthly, Moses said, then you are ensnared. Ensnared into doing what they do. 
And I think we can tell that they were holding a little loosely at this point in their walk because look at chapter 12, verse 8. They are told, you are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit, since you've not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 8 is implying everyone is doing as they see fit. That means, oh, he's going to worship this way. I think I'll worship this way. And another neighbor's thinking, I think I'll worship this way and maybe add a little bit of what some of the the pagan nations do in my worship of God, they had gotten lazy, they had gotten lax in following the strict requirements of worship that God had given them while they were traveling in the wilderness. We cannot afford to be lazy about holding on to our faith. Look with me on your verse sheet. Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing idea of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Look at the next verse. Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that doesn't acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. And let me explain there, this has to be the Jesus that we know that's been revealed in the Word of God. There's a lot of religions that will say, oh, yeah, 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 we believe Jesus. It's not the Jesus that's in the Word of God. That's what you have to know. So there could be no place in God's land for this kind of religions that were filthy and perverse. And there could be no place in God's people's hearts for gods made out of sticks and stones. These atrocities must be removed. He tells them totally, actually even violently. Because they are a slap in the face to the creator of the universe. Break them, smash them, crush them, burn them, get rid of every sign of them. And then here's the goal that they would want in verse 3. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, burn their poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, and wipe out their names from those places. If the Canaanites could no longer find these places of worship, what the word's saying here is eventually the names of those gods themselves could be forgotten because guess what? They're stones and sticks and objects. They're not living gods in the least. And that's what they're hoping to do. The second thing they had to remove were the people that were leading them into this kind of worship. And when we read about they need to be killed, they need to be put to death, they need to be stoned, we think, boy, that just sounds so cruel and mean. And in reality, it is a loving God who is protecting a nation from this kind of filth and perversity. And I also think, uh, we talked about this morning, the laws of when you come into a town, you'll notice... If someone in the town is leading a whole town astray, you don't just go in and kill them. First, you get witnesses, you do a trial. You make sure you don't just go in and do something like that. Um, And also that these laws were used as a great deterrent. It wasn't that they had to kill so many people because people knew that law and said, I'm not going to do that. 
God used this law as a deterrent as well. God said, get rid of this because it's rebellion against God. It turns them from me. These are detestable ways to me. You will become ensnared in the wrong ways. I'm a holy God. Evil must be purged from the land. And all Israel will see these punishments and turn to the true one living God. And God's anger will turn away and his compassion increase. How do we hold fast to the one who is worthy? Look at chapter 13, verse 3. You mustn't listen to the words of the prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. We must love God with all our heart and with all our soul. This is a way to hold fast to the one who is worthy. Because he's our creator, because he loves us, because we are his treasure possession, and because he alone is worthy of worship, perfect in holiness. Uh, Look on your verse sheet, Psalm 22. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted. And we're not disappointed. And did you notice in verse 3, uh, and then verse 4, how it says, Him, every time, follow Him, revere Him, obey Him, serve Him. This is the second way we can stay close to God. We must be purposeful in our relationship with Him on your outline. Those things, serving, revering, obeying, these are not accidental activities. These are intentional activities. We have to roll up our sleeves in order to do this and hold fast to him. And then God says, okay, I'm going to plan two ways in worship that will keep you connected to me. The how to worship and the where to worship. True worship is in the place that God chooses. Look at verse 5 in chapter 12. You are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name near for his dwelling. To that place you must go. Now the Canaanites, this is why he keeps mentioning them, guess where they went? Wherever they wanted. Every few feet if they wanted. They did whatever they wanted, went wherever they wanted. But the children of Israel would be unique because they would have one place to go. Nobody else was doing that. And I wanted to think through a little bit of a history of uh, Israel. In the book of Genesis, we read that God walked with his people. He walked with Noah. He walked with Enoch. He walked with Abraham. But after God freed Israel from Egypt, and they were in the wilderness, he comes to Moses and announces, I want to dwell with you. And I think Ellen's going to put up, oh, she can't put it up. Okay, well, just pretend there's a picture of the tabernacle up there. He said, build me a tabernacle, which is like this elaborate tent. And so the people contributed out of their own wealth to build this temple. And inside the temple was the Ark of the Testimony. This was a special chest. It held a jar of manna. It held Aaron's rod when Moses and Aaron were uh, leading the people. It held two tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. It sat in the middle of, picture the kind of rectangle of the tabernacle. 
sat in the middle of it, and that symbolized God's presence in the middle of his people. It was covered with the atonement cover and had a cherub on each end with wings pointing upwards. And there above the cherubim, God said he would give Moses the commandments and the direction for Israel to take. And this was called the mercy seat. There was also an altar of incense, an altar for burnt offerings, a table, a lampstand, and a basin. But the greatest thing is when Moses dedicated that tabernacle, God came down in glory, making the mercy seat on the ark, his holy throne. In fact, I want us to read that together. Turn, Keep your fingers in Deuteronomy and turn back to Exodus a couple books. Exodus 40. Okay, Exodus 40, verse 34. This is after they dedicated the tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. Don't you know that was an incredible moment and an incredible thing? I think if you ever started to doubt God, you could look up and say, Oh, there he is. There's the cloud. There's the fire. Oh, it's moving. It's time to move. Head out. We're following God. I mean, what an encouragement. It's exciting. Only uh, the Canaanites had all these places with no life and nothing happening. Only the children of God, the Israelites, actually had the presence of God within them, that glorious presence visibly dwelling and leading them. Look at what Romans 9 says about that. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs, the divine glory. And that's what that means, the divine glory that they saw within them. The covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. On your outline, the fact that there was only one sanctuary for Israel signified there was but one true God one authorized worship, and one holy nation. And so what these verses are telling us that we just read in Deuteronomy is that they were to carry the tabernacle into the promised land, and that would be where they would come and worship. And it was in different towns at different times, from Shiloh to Shechem to some other places as well. Eventually, years later, King David brought the ark into Jerusalem. Because of Israel's sins, the glory of the Lord departed from the tabernacle, and God told David, your son Solomon will build me a temple. And that is what he did, and this became the dwelling place of God. When that temple by Solomon was dedicated, the glory of God was upon that temple as well. 
Years later, Babylon captured Judah after many uh, an evil king and rebellion from Israel. And the prophet Ezekiel said he saw the glory of God depart from the temple. And that was a sad day. Throughout Israel's history, God's desire has been for his people to worship in one place, the wilderness, the promised land, and later the temple in Jerusalem. And because of this, I mentioned on your outline, this unified the nation, strengthened their faith, protected their true worship of God. And then true worship is demonstrated in the manner that God desires. Look at verse 5 in chapter 12. You are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among your tribes to put his name there. And to that place you must go. And there bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you've put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. How the Israelites were to worship was directed by God for his glory and for their preservation as a nation. First, the one altar for sacrifices. Again, the pagan nations, multiple altars. Israel, one altar. You could kill meat and livestock in your town and eat that, but you must never sacrifice that animal. Only sacrifices could take place as a body together done by the priests in the one place that the people were. Uh, There were two main purposes for sacrifices. One, to make atonement for their sins. These would be the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings. And two, to express thanksgiving and devotion to God, the fellowship offerings, the grain offerings. And the burnt offering symbolized also total dedication to God because the whole thing would be consumed on the altar. And the peace and fellowship offerings spoke about communion with God. And then they would offer um, the meat to the priests and the Levites. And Deb spoke last week about the Levites as a tribe not having their own inheritance of land because they were the priestly tribe who did God's work for the nation. And so they were to be taken care of by God's people. So your tithes and offerings and your obedience to God is what kept um, food on the table for the Levite tribe. So it was important to be obedient there. And then the tithes and offerings were brought. Let's look at verse 17. You must not eat in your own towns the tithe of your grain and new wine and oil or the first burn of your herds and flocks or whatever you vowed to give or your free will offering or special gifts. Instead, eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he chooses, you, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maidservants and the Levites from your towns, and you are to rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. And here's the reminder, be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in the land. So the people would get 10% of what their produce was, 10% of what their livestock was, and they would bring it in joy to share it with the priests and the Levites to come before God. And then every three years, they would bring an extra tithe, and that would go to the poor. Uh, in the area. And so this was what they would do to be obedient. If you lived really far 
from the one place of worship. You could um, have your animal in your hometown and then sell it and bring the money and purchase another animal for sacrifice at the one place of worship and then offer it to God uh, there. There were offerings which were for the community. There were vow offerings that fulfilled a vow. There were free will offerings. These were voluntary. And you get the picture. Imagine um, what it's like when everybody's together with the same faith, together saying, isn't God good? Let's share this with each other. And I've got my wife here, and there's your son, Billy, and oh, yeah, there's your grandfather. And look, this is my servant here, and we're all together at a table. Join us. We are worshiping God, obeying him, worshiping in the manner he called us to worship. And then they were told to handle the blood in a special way. Look at verse 15. You may slaughter your animals in any of your towns and eat as much of the meat as you want, as if it were gazelle or deer, according to the blessing the Lord your God gives you. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it, but you must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. And look at verse 23. But be sure you don't eat the blood, because the blood is the life, and you must not eat the life with the meat. You must not eat the blood, pour it on the ground like water, don't eat it, so it may go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Take your consecrated things and whatever you have vowed to give, go to the place the Lord will choose, present your burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord your God, both the meat and the blood. The blood of your sacrifices must be poured beside the altar of your God, but you may eat the meat. Be careful to obey these regulations. You know, I thought it was interesting. Way before science realized how important blood is, God had deemed blood precious because he knew that in the blood was the life. And it was not to be treated like common food. So the Jews, if they were at home, they were to uh, pour the blood out on the ground. When he was in the sanctuary, the priest would drain it next to the altar. And some rituals of sacrifice call for them to sprinkle blood on the altar, around the altar, against the altar. And this showed respect for the animal that had given its life for the people's atonement. In Leviticus, we see blood would make atonement for the sins of the worshiper. So blood is the life, and blood gives life. And you're all thinking to yourself, wow, so many of these things in the tabernacle are really about Jesus. And that would be a whole other study we could do one day. Let's just touch on a few of the basic things. On your outline, worshiping as God desired back then was a visual lesson of our redemption through Jesus today. From above, if you looked above the tabernacle, the way that the Ark of the Covenant was set and the way that the altars were made and the candle stands, guess what it looks like? A cross. And the shadow of the cross was over the tabernacle in many ways. It was all over the worship of Israel because you're all thinking, yes, that's Christ. When they brought an unblemished animal as a sacrifice for their sins, we see Christ 
on the cross. When the high priest interceded for the sins of the people before God, we see Christ doing the very same thing on the cross. And in the temple in Jerusalem, when the veil, the thick, heavy curtain, split in two between the holy place and the place for the people that separated them from God, that was the work Christ was doing on the cross. And that happened at his death on the cross. Christ making it available for all people to walk through the Holy of Holies and have a relationship with God. Rejoicing in all that God has done for us in Christ, this today is our worship. When Jesus entered the world, he was the tabernacle that came to dwell with people. No longer was one central place of worship needed because in Christ we all become the temple of God. Now we still need the church. That's God's plan as well. We need it for support and strength and ministry. But we don't need the church to have the presence of God. We have that within our heart individually. On your outline, all believers don't meet in one place to worship God. We meet around one person with a capital P. Only the person of Christ could make atonement for our sins. Look at Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And look at when John the Baptist sees Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God is still worthy of worship, and we come to him through his Son, who he sent to make atonement and be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And then true worship today is still in a a place that he chooses on your outline. It's not about a physical location. It's about the location of our heart. The Hebrew translation of worship means to prostrate prostrate oneself. I knew I was going to do that. And so the earth is full of true worship because wherever someone has in their heart that humble attitude before God, that is true worship taking place. We don't all have to be in one spot for that. We are bringing him our sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of humility. Look at Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God now are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then true worship is in the manner he desires. You read about Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. And she says, we worship here, you worship there. And Jesus says, you know, a time is here, coming quickly, where it will not matter where, but it will matter how you worship. And he tells her, we worship in spirit and in truth. And the word spirit there means our spirit. He's saying to her, it's not about an outside external location. It's about the location and attitude that's within your heart. It's internal. And I want to just throw out a little thought here on that. Because many years ago, I was at some meeting somewhere. And a woman who uh, I didn't know had been talking about, she was visiting churches. And she said, yeah, we went to this one church Sunday, but... 
uh, nobody in there was really worshiping. And when she said that, I just got this check in my spirit, and I thought, well, how do you know that? Were you in their hearts? How do you know that? Well, guess what? That wasn't, she was forgetting that worship is about the spirit. She was thinking it's about what's external, how you're behaving. And guess what? We all worship in different ways. So we are not to judge someone. If you need to raise your hands when you worship, raise your hands when you worship. But just because someone next to you might not be does not mean they're not worshiping. And we can get in a lot of trouble when we start deciding who's worshiping in certain ways and who isn't. Some people only want to worship lying flat on the ground with their head down and just calling out to God. We can worship with our eyes shut. Some people worship in dancing. Some people can't. I have a friend, uh, her name is Linda, and she was in Colorado. One of her funniest stories is she just loves the Lord. And so one day some people really were worshiping God and dance, and someone said, tomorrow night, why don't you do that, Linda? Now, this was probably not a good way to do this. And so she's like, okay. And so she, she demonstrates, you know, she's, she's out doing this, and she said in the middle of it, I thought, I'm looking like an idiot out here in front of these people. And so she wasn't worshiping God anymore. That, that wasn't her calling on that day. Do some people do that? Yes. What we care about is the heart, and that's the good thing. I can't judge how you're worshiping because it's spirit. And it's also truth, and that means what is true about God. We worship from our heart what's true about God as he has revealed himself in his Son. This is acceptable and true worship, giving God the glory do his name through Christ in humility from our heart. That's what brings glory to God. That's what brings joy to our hearts. That's what we are created to do. That's what takes us out of a wilderness and brings us into the presence of God and all the blessings that go along with that. Let's pray. Father, we worship you today because you are worthy of worship. Each day, may you remind us of that, that we may fellowship with you by giving you praise and by glorifying your name. Thank you, Father, that you are who you are and that you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few quick announcements before we leave. There is still time to sign up for Ladies' Day Away, which is February 21st. It's on a Saturday, and you can find, sign up in the Fellowship Hall as soon as we leave here. It's just $10.